Welcome to the Pathfinder Executive Search Podcast. I'm Bruce Wright, the Founder and Managing Director of Pathfinder Executive Search. And for the last 15 years, I've had the exciting task of finding top software and tech executives, their new teammates and colleagues. If you'd like to know more about what we do, our website is pathfindersearch.co.uk and our Twitter handle is pathfinder underscore es. Or check out my LinkedIn profile, Bruce Wright at uh, Pathfinder. should be pretty easy to find. Okay, so today is our first podcast in a few weeks, although I have released some private podcasts that some of my LinkedIn network have signed up for. But today's podcast is really exactly what I always wanted this podcast to be. A great guest from not just a high-profile, successful company, but an important company who have been responsible for changing the landscape. Twilio is a company that gets talked about and mentioned to me on a regular basis and today I'm thrilled to have Twilio's former European director, James Parton, on the podcast. I really wanted to talk about Twilio and uh, and we do that a lot. Uh, James probably got quite bored with it but but if you have questions about Twilio and how they did things, I'm hoping a lot of that's going to be answered today. But it's also a slightly more personal conversation than the previous episodes and James really was great so uh, let's get on with it. Okay James, uh, welcome to the podcast and uh, many thanks for coming on. Yeah thanks very much for the invitation, I appreciate it. Not at all, I have to say that I think uh, Twilio and and you in particular uh, are two names that have probably come up more than probably anybody else in the last two to three years so uh, I'm really pleased you agreed to do it So, so thanks again. Um, on that note, um, Twilio is obviously going to feature quite uh, quite quite prominently in this podcast. But um, bring me up to um, uh, speed on where you are right now. There's a couple of things you're doing. Um, tell me a little bit about land and expand, and then there's something else I want to uh, want to ask you about as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when I moved on from Twilio, I kind of reflected on you know the kinds of things I'm really impassionate about, and uh, quickly it was pretty evident that. Working with software developers was, you know, really that kind of passion area. Um, I've spent the last 10 years of my career creating and launching and running developer programs. And as you say, you know, most recently I was doing that at, at Twilio. Um, and I think, you know, what really excites me about that is developer marketing is a really new niche of marketing. So it's exciting to be at the kind of forefront of something new. Um, and, you know, when I was kind of looking at what to do next, there's not really many people that have a track, re- a track record of success in that field, especially in Europe. Um, so, you know, I'm really excited by the team I've pulled together with Land and Expand um, and, and feel like there's a really big opportunity there. So that's a really long way to say kind of Land and Expand is a developer marketing agency. Um, you know, often you might hear that called developer relations or DevRel uh, for short. Um, so we kind of help technology companies that are thinking of offering tools and services to developers or companies that want to kind of up level their existing program and really understand what kind of a world class program looks like. Mm, interesting. Certainly something which is, uh, uh, I think, well timed. I think, well, I'm sure it will be and, and fingers crossed it will be a huge success for you. Uh, and your work as a mentor, James, give me uh, give me a flavour for that as well. Yeah, well, that's you know been a byproduct um, of working in the tech community for the past. 
decade and and one of the things you know i really enjoy doing um you know i love meeting new people um especially people that are kind of super passionate about their ideas and their products and their companies and you know typically typically i end up helping companies that want to market to developers you know so kind of understanding that twilio playbook um or companies that are just trying to figure out their general sales and marketing strategies because uh, typically a lot of early stage companies are founded by tech founders and, and they need support and advice on sales and marketing um but it's it's always led by them so they pick you you know you don't pick them so it, it's very much led by them and uh and most of those opportunities have come through you know the kind of accelerators in london like Techstars and 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 folks like that hmm. are you inundated because twilio you know is such a prominent name out there uh you know are people always seeking you out for this uh, this advice um yeah um it's it's nice to be popular (laughs) um (laughs) you know obviously you know having that twilio experience um is is a draw for people um you know i think a a lot of people you know want to understand what it's like to be part of a ride you know in in, in that twilio experienced um so i i joined twilio around about 70 people um and was the first hire outside of the us and uh you know had the privilege of kind of seeing that grow um i think it was around about 800 900 people when i left and and obviously you know the biggest milestone was becoming a public company back in summer last year Mm, absolutely. It didn't take us long to get onto Twilio, did it? So uh, <laughs> tell me, uh, how did you get the gig uh, for Twilio? I think that's uh, something I, I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, so uh, I was approached by them in late 2011. Um, they'd been watching the work I'd be I'd been doing at Telefonica. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that I'd been working with software developers and software programs for about a decade. Um, so I'd launched uh, a developer program at Telefonica called Bluevia, and, and they'd be kind of watching from afar in terms of the work I was doing there. Um, and ironically, you know, it was true in reverse as well. I'd been looking and admiring at Twilio um, in terms of what Twilio were up to as well. So um, it was a kind of a, a nice meeting of minds. Um, and in terms of kind of, you know, why did I I'd kind of uh, take the opportunity? It's kind of being an insider in the telco industry. You know, I was, I was 100 percent convinced on the, the need for Twilio. Um, you know, a service that really opens up the telco infrastructure for developers um, and makes it kind of democratic uh, because, you know, the telcos do operate their networks as a black box. Um, and, and you know, I was pretty certain due to the kind of the DNA and the business priorities of the telcos that they were never really going to be able to successfully capitalize on working with software developers directly. Um yeah, and on top of that, I'm very much a starter. So having the opportunity to be the first hire and build the European operation from scratch was, you know, just it was too exciting to turn down. It's interesting you say that about the telcos because um, that conversation just seems to have changed in the last few years. It was always, you just wait until there's some proper competition in this space. You know, it's, uh, these these big bellicose telco giants are really going to uh, have to change what they're doing, and uh, it's coming to pass. So uh, you, um, I think you moved at the right time. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got nothing but good things to say about my time at, you know, O2 and Telefonica because, you know, they were great. They they were great years and, you know, they really shaped me as as an individual and and taught me a great deal. 
but and I was there for if you like the glory years you know in the early 2000s the uh, the, the telcos were really at the center of the universe and um they you know controlled the customer experience and um you know really could be in a position to dictate what services and apps the customer was presented with and used um but obviously with the advent of data and the advent of iPhone and app stores you know increasingly uh, the, the telco has been marginalized on the service side of things. And, and you know, unfortunately, um, the worst thing for a telco person to hear is, you know, they are becoming marginalized as a bit carrier and uh, and a, as a utility player, um, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a big challenge for them. Um, so mm. cer- certainly saw, you know, saw that coming and um, and always felt like, you know, the key way for telcos to innovate was to open up. And rather than always feel like they had to control everything and develop all the products is, you know, open up their assets and let third party developers actually innovate on top of their network infrastructure. Um, but only Twilio was really successful in making that a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we've, we've spoken before as well, James, about, you know, it was your first kind of real go to start up. I think that was something you felt was important to your, your personal development. Uh, Twilio, yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much had a corporate career until, um, I joined Twilio. Um, and I think, you know, that was a, it was a really important uh, thing for me personally, because, you know, from a personal reflection perspective, I was working with a lot of startups. I was working with a lot of developers, but I, I couldn't shake this kind of, well, one, I had a kind of itch to do it, you know, having had all of that exposure to, you know, what it's like to be, you know, in a startup and developing your own products and services. And then the second thing, I was stri- struggling with this kind of self-perceived lack of authenticity. You know, when, you, when you're trying to work with the startup community, but you're doing that from a relatively comfortable position in a nice corporate job, it just didn't sit right with me. So I, I just felt mm. like I, I really needed to put my kind of money where my mouth was and, and really, you know, kind of walk the walk um and you know <laughs> one personal bugbear of mine is just the amount of corporate executives you see hanging around the tech community who kind of identify themselves as entrepreneurs um but you know and unfortunately they they actually believe that gives them credibility with startups but it really doesn't so no. you know I, I just had to get out there and do it for myself indeed yeah entrepreneurs i think along with thought leaders in inverted commas there seems to be uh a bit of a supply and demand issue there. There's a lot of supply and uh, and not a lot of demand for them. But uh, well, yeah, but, and it, it all comes down to risk at the end of the day. You know, uh, someone working in a corporate, you know, if their project fails or their current job doesn't work out, there's always something else for them to fall back to. Whereas in a startup, you, you're you're putting your life on the line right you know it's your family you've got to feed it's the people you pay that are working for you it's it's all or nothing right and so you there's just no comparison whole different ball game absolutely yeah um Still on Twilio, unsurprisingly uh stock was quite volatile when Twilio went public uh it's early 2016 um how exactly did that affect you uh, I seem to think it was I seem to remember it was the uh, quite famous the day before the brexit vote. Um, did Twilio make any special plans to counter those effects or uh, uh, and did you see any effects? I mean, not really. I mean, I think Jeff, you know, our CEO, co-founder, he always did a good job of kind of making it really clear that, you know, you're going to come to work each day and the stock might rise, the stock might fall. And honestly, most of that has got nothing to do with actually what you're doing as a company day to day. That's just the the nature of being a public company and and the whims of the Mm. stock market. Um, So, you know, you can only focus on the things you can control. And that's obviously building a great company. Um, So, you know, I think there was always a really good job 
done to set expectation at that level. Um, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that, uh, and we'll probably talk about this as we kind of go through the conversation, but, you know, Twilio in, in very much was a trailblazer for a new type of company, you know, being like an APR, mm. being an API company that doesn't actually sell any products is, is a, it's a difficult thing to get your head around, especially for like, you know, a more traditional kind of stock market. It, it's very difficult to value a company like Twilio because there's not been precedent before Twilio in terms of that kind of business model. So, you know, it, it didn't surprise anyone is, you know, the, the kind of the education job that's required through the various kind of, you know, um, uh, road shows that Jeff and um, the, 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 the executive team go on are, are just vital in terms of building an understanding that there's this new breed of company with a very different business model to what they're, uh, they're, what they're used to. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we certainly will get into that if, uh, if we uh, have time and it's okay with you. But um, one, one final question on the Brexit, uh, the Brexit situation, because it's something I think the questions have died down slightly now, but um, I was uh, literally every day uh, for weeks on end, you know, am I seeing any effects of it? Was there any impact of it? Was there at uh, Twilio? No, uh, is the is the straight answer. Um, I mean, I don't Good. think any, I don't think anyone really knows what Brexit actually is going to mean to anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, really, it hasn't uh, affected the business at all in Europe. Um, you know, it just goes from strength to strength, and uh, there, there was no real Brexit conversation at all. So it was uh, business as usual. Good. I shall refer people to your answer in the future <laughs> when, uh, when I'm asked. Um, now, Twilio appear, and this, I know this is a question I've I've um, I've listened to being levelled at, at your CEO, but um, you seem to be or seem to be fairly dependent on a relatively small number of customers. Competition is hotting up uh, in that space. Um, were Twilio worried, or are they worried? Um, I, I think it, it, there's a kind of link there with a lot with the, my answer to the last question about being a different type of company. So I think it's probably worth just taking a second to explain the kind of business model and how it works, because that will probably end up answering the question. So please, yeah, you know. Twilio's business model is is centered on inbound self-service. So what that means is, you know, anyone can come to the website, they can sign up, they can get started and they can launch a product or even a company with actually typically never actually needing to speak to any anyone inside Twilio. Um, that's quite different from most traditional companies that you can have a completely, you know, arm's length relationship with your customers and they, they just suddenly go off, build something exciting. And sometimes it, you know, it blows up into something huge. Um, and this experience has been created because, you know, Twilio intimately understands its target market and, and how it wants to transact. So, when you think about software developers, um, you know, at the risk of broad brushing people, you know, they trust peer recommendation, they trust independent validation. So, you know, any company putting a sales team in front of, um, you know, being able to access their products and services is really going to fail in this kind of new mm -hmm. world uh, because people don't want to go through those kinds of gatekeepers, right? They just want to um, get a recommendation, check it out, and if they like it, they're going to start using it. Um, mm. so, so actually when you look through that lens, the Twilio model has actually been super successful. It's, it's created a huge and diverse customer base. It's very much the kind of classic long tail, you know, as coined by Chris Anderson. Um, mm. so this really demonstrated demand, um, and proved, uh, the kind of the need for the service. And it's allowed Twilio to, to really refine their proposition, extend their product lines. And, and obviously that's, 
you know, kind of proven out by, you know, they raised over 230 million in, in capital prior to going public. And they've had, they've, as a business, they've had enough momentum to actually go public. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think it's really, um, looking at it in a different way to a traditional business. And the fact that, you know, they only have in quotes, a small number of high spending customers is really a proof point of the business model. It's actually a positive thing. You know, actually the business model and the vision was proven out. Um, and, and now Twilio is maturing as a business. They are obviously now starting to think about, well, how do we more proactively go after larger customers? So it's not a negative thing. It's just been a kind of, mm. it's been a, it's been a byproduct of a very deliberate business model and a, and a, a choice of how to engage with their customer base. Absolutely. Speaking of lenses, I'm, I'm now keen to turn that a little bit more on you as opposed to, uh, your, uh, your former employer. Um, what have been some of the tough times in your career, James? I mean, honestly, I think I'm kind of struggling to give you a good answer to that because, I mean, I tend to be hopefully a pretty positive glass half full type of person. Um, you know, I mean, I'm struggling to think of anything off the top of my head. And, and if it has been there, it's probably just been absorbed and kind of, you know, helped shape me. And I haven't really kind of, you know, spent too much time dwelling on it. Um you're kind of making me think yeah. now, but I mean, I think, I mean, maybe <laughs> if I kind of go right back to the, the, the kind of beginning, um, I wasn't exactly a superstar student at school. Um, so let's just say I was too busy being distracted by non-academic uh, activities to be too focused on school. <laughs> um, so I left with, you know, really poor exam results. I didn't go to university. So I guess that you could have viewed that as a setback or, or, you know, a period of adversity, but, you know, I, I just, I'm just very much a hustler and a fast learner and I've never really felt like it held me back. Um, you know, I actually went back and studied later in my life to gain all the kind of professional qualifications. Um, not really cause I had to, but just to kind of prove it to myself, I could do it. Um, mm. and it's always kind of made me kind of keep an eye out and kind of help people that have followed a similar path. You know, I think when I did that, that was like 30 odd years ago. And now, you know, things are very different. Degrees are kind of now table stakes to get your foot into the door with a lot of organizations. So I, yeah. you know, I try to look past that and really look at the pe the person and their potential to grow and kind of shine in a, in a vocational environment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a good answer, but, um, no, that's a great answer, a really great answer. Any particular pivotal uh, pivotal moments in your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's been I think one one ability I do have is is kind of being present in a moment and realizing it's an opportunity. And I think that you know there's probably been about half a dozen of those opportunities over the course of my career, which you know there was a choice to make either, you know, keep quiet and, and just carry on or actually grab it with both hands and see where it takes you. Um, and yeah, the, and there's, you know, there's been a few of those and I think, you know, I think it's really, um, important that, you know, you always grab opportunity when you spot it. And I'm a big fan of kind of moving yourself out of your comfort zone. I think it's only when you're kind of stretching yourself and you're learning something new um, that you're actually kind of moving forward. I, I just hate repetition. I hate that kind of feeling that you can do something with your eyes closed. So, you know, as soon as a job feels like it's routine, I think it's time for a change. Great answer. Um, sorry to do this, but back to Twilio, James. Yeah. Um, I regularly hear Twilio being referred to as the benchmark, uh, benchmark sorry, for what we want to achieve. Uh, it's these sorts of conversations where, you know, Twilio and yourself have, have cropped up again and again and again. Um, what did you guys do that was so right? 
yeah, that's that's a big question. Um, okay, so I mean, I think you know, first and foremost, if you have an amazing founding team and a great product, then you're off and running. But it it is way more deeper than that. I mean, I think. You know, Jeff was trying to solve a real problem that he'd encountered working in StubHub. So kind of in effect, he was his own focus group. Um, are, are you familiar with the kind of founding story of Twilio? I am a little, but I mean, you know, listeners may not be. So so do okay. feel free to. I know that uh, Jeff was somewhat of a serial entrepreneur beforehand, did a load of things he did enjoy and didn't enjoy. And uh, yeah, StubHub came up against a particular obstacle with this one. So, um, so yeah, carry, carry on. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so Jeff was, um, the founding CTO at StubHub, the, you know, the online ticket exchange. Um, mm. and the, the problem they had, you know, the real world problem was when someone has a ticket to sell and someone wants to buy it, you know, trying to organize the exchange of that ticket is, is, you know, difficult and carries a lot of stress, you know, because obviously the buyer doesn't want to feel like they're going to get ripped off and not get their ticket in time for the concert or the, the sporting event or whatever it may be. So, so, you know, as a developer, you know, Jeff just wanted to be able to kind of write some code that solved that problem. And um, and really, you know, it all comes back down to, I guess, human nature. And we still kind of revert back to, you know, the need to speak to someone um, to, to kind of build that trust or or to arrange a pickup point and a pickup time. You know, nothing beats the kind of, you know, the human interaction of a conversation. Um, mm. and, and he just couldn't do it. You know, there was no way that as a developer he could contact a telecoms company um get access to their you know their network to to you know programmatically create a phone call that puts two people together um that want to talk to each other um mm. you know people having to post their mobile number or their phone number online is horrible and you know there's privacy concerns and it just wasn't a way to solve it and you know Jeff didn't immediately solve that problem, but he took that kind of bugbear with him, you know, and he then went to Amazon and, um, and, and kind of, you know, started, uh, was a product manager at Amazon Web Services, you know, and he, he came back to solving that problem with Twilio, you know, so kind of, I guess, combining that original need with his experience of, you know, working in the cloud at Amazon to, to come up with Twilio. Um, so, and I think, you know, the other massive advantage is, you know, the co-founding team were all developers. So they inherently know what developers needed. They, they knew how developers like to be spoken to. Um, so, you know, before a label was put on, you know, the kind of developer marketing or developer relations, they were kind of, you know, intuitively doing it. Um, I think, you know, I can, I can ramble on here for a while, but the, I think, you know, another big piece of it is the company culture. You know, it was very much formed in the image of the co-founders. There's a lot of humility inside the business and there's a strong sense of ethics. You know, Jeff has been quite vocal recently and getting quite political in terms of what's going on in the US. Um, they always want to do the right thing. And I think, you know, more than anything else, there's a genuine love of developers, you know, as artists and creators. Um so Twilio were really one of those first kind of um, companies to insist that you could make money by selling to developers. It it kind of feels hard to believe now, you know, looking back with a you know a three billion value value company, but it was really hard for Jeff to raise money in the early days of Twilio because VCs didn't believe that developers made any purchasing decisions. You know, they would never spend yeah. they would never spend any money. Um, back to that point about Twilio being a trailblazer. 
So I think, you know, if you wrap all of those things up, being the kind of poster child for recognizing the developer, making them the hero of the story, talking about what they create rather than what Twilio sells. You know, these were kind of all revolutionary things that helped create this kind of movement. Um, and I think it was kind of beautiful. I don't know if you've um, seen photos or if you've been to the valley, but Twilio ran a billboard campaign um, in San Francisco, um, which simply was a massive red billboard with the Twilio logo. And all it said was, ask your developer, you know, so simplistic, but genius, you know, because because it just empowers a constituency that's never really had a voice or been recognized, you know, as really being, um, um, you know, um, part of the decision making process so that was a beautiful thing i think that really kind of summed it up nicely um no yeah very uh, very elegant absolutely um so you know really everything there is orientated to making de- developers successful um you know there's an obsession with the product there's an obsession with the user experience and that kind of carries through to the business model as well right so twilio um is a pay-as-you-go business model with no contract so that means that you know there's no complacency inside the company when all of your customers can be paying you on Monday and then leave you on Tuesday. Um, you know, you can't afford to take any days off. Um, it focuses the mind somewhat. Yeah, it, it does. You know, so it's, it's really the exact opposite of who they're competing against. Right. Cause if you look at the old school technology vendors, it's all about kind of long contracts with lock in maintenance agreements, inflexible roadmaps, you know, the lack of ability to react to market changes or customer needs, you know, so this is, this is why you need to look at Twilio through a different lens because they're so, fundamentally different to what they're up against in the kind of you know existing space so that's a very very long answer to try to say (laughs) you know what was so different or why did it kind of achieve you know it's not something you can just kind of you know carbon copy it it, there's there's it's really running through the dna of the company well, I'm sure it'll be the subject of uh, of case studies much longer than what you've said uh, at some point in the future. It's uh, a vast topic, I'm sure, but that's a tremendous insight given there and uh, much uh, much appreciated. Um, you're quite right in saying Twilio really did blaze a path for API companies, uh, and it's sort of in some ways credit, credited with creating this situation where um, you know developers try things and they recommend it up through the organisation to uh, to the business people without sort of makes uh, makes developers sound very second class doesn't it but um but it was it was this driving decisions from the bottom up that really uh, uh really changed things how has that shaped the sales efforts uh, and strategy i know we we've covered some of that but if there was uh, perhaps a a little a little snippet of uh, of a specific example in there i'd i'd love to hear it yeah um i mean i guess um yeah i mean you're right i mean pretty much Every large account Twilio has won, a developer has played some pivotal role in that process. It's normally by kind of experimenting or prototyping with the technology and then showing their work internally or, you know, by making a recommendation, as you say. Um, I think I think one kind of key element to Twilio's sales success has been the role of the kind of the, the, the sales engineer or the technical pre-sales team, you know, whatever you want to kind of call that kind of role. Um I mean, they're they're vital because they kind of bridge that gap between the developers and the business people in the organization. So, you know, they can they can they can help kind of um, 
build ideas, you know, build demos and help the developers actually bring their ideas to life, um, you know, through the coding side of things. But they see the co- the big company picture. They understand how um, they could, they understand the kind of integration points into the into the business and how to help that. Um, and then they're comfortable at operating at the kind of C level and selling in more the vision, the mission, you know, the business benefits, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'd really kind of spotlight that that kind of role as as a, as a key kind of contribution to the the success of Twilio sales organization mm, interesting and um finally uh, finally getting off of Twilio you'll be relieved but um <laughs> why are there so few <laughs> why are there so few uk uh, tech success stories there seems to be a load of exciting early stage ventures with innovative products but somehow they just seem to get lost uh, along the way and, and don't realize their potential uh, leadership um lacking essential skills what's your what's your take on that james um i mean i think i think there's kind of two parts to that question um you know i think the first part is maybe just um you know reporting and the second could be kind of cultural and confidence um so you know actually when you look at it the you know the the the, the health of the of the tech business is 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 you know kind of very very vibrant. It's it's never been a better time to be in tech, both in kind of the UK and and also you know Europe as a whole. So I mean I I was kind of taking a look at a few of the numbers. Um, you know I think last year alone in 2016 there was over 16 billion euros of venture capital invested in 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 tech startups across europe and 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 i guess interestingly for the audience here is you know the uk was the number one um of taking mm-hmm. taking a share of that 16 billion it took nearly 20 percent of that money um you know there's 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 some huge technology kind of acquisitions um that happen that don't tend to get a lot of mainstream headlines so you know, for instance, SoftBank acquired Arm in Cambridge for $32 billion. Um, yeah, yeah. Supercell, the kind of, um, were acquired for over $10 billion. Um, NXP Semiconductors, kind of not a high, a, a high street name, but they're a chip maker from the Netherlands. They were brought for $47 billion by Qualcomm. So, you know, I think th- there are huge success stories out there. And, and I think we need to do a better job of really kind of, bringing that into the mainstream because i think you know i think it is easy just to say oh you know europe is it's not silicon valley but i don't think we need to try to be silicon valley right i think you know i think there's a there's enough space for more than just silicon valley in the world um so when you look at london you know in the uk you know fintech is very hot at the moment ai is hot um, vr ar internet of things and you know gaming you know the, the gaming industry mm. is enormous and there's a there's a ton of great game developers in the uk as well so you know it's exciting yeah, no, I was at a meeting last week, and they just won a huge contract with a with a large gaming company. I mean, it is it's such a vast area. Um, well, look, I mean, that's a, a lovely positive note to uh, to finish this uh, conversation on, James. So uh, I appreciate it. But um, uh, please let everybody know about the podcast you're involved with, so we can, um, you know, you've, you've probably got more listeners than me anyway. But uh, if we can push some of the love in that direction, that'd be that'd be good as well. 
Well, yeah, I've dabbled with a few things over the years. Um, <laughs> the podcast, I'm not sure, is that successful. Um, one thing, I'd, I mean, I guess, you know, just kind of building off that last that last question around the kind of UK tech industry, if if the listeners are interested to keep a handle on, you know, how the UK tech industry is developing, you know, the, um, what we do is we publish a weekly newsletter on a Friday, which is a really um, nice, clean uh, digest of the week's top stories. So everyone is pushed for time. No one's got time to keep up with stuff so if you just want one email with half a dozen stories to read over the weekend then that's that's the the, the newsletter to sign up to so if you're interested in that check out um landedexpand.net um slash newsletter and uh and jump on the mailing list that would be that would be great no, that sounds uh frankly something i'd be very interested in as well so uh so thank you um okay well look james um it's been an absolute pleasure uh thank you so much for agreeing to come on i've had uh, a good a good chunk of your time i know you're very busy at the moment so uh look until the next time thanks again <laughs>